Hello everyone, what is up? Welcome back to another episode of Killer Instinct and Happy New Year, you guys. I haven't been able to say that to you yet. I had pre-recorded the last three episodes that brought us into the new year. So this is the first episode I'm filming in 2023. So I hope you all had a very fun and safe new year, whatever it is that you ended up doing. But with that being said, welcome to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. And before we get started, make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. We post weekly on the podcast every Wednesdays and we also post the YouTube video to the podcast on Wednesdays as well. So it's Killer Instinct Wednesdays and you are not going to want to miss it. Now, as you guys can tell by the title of today's episode, today we are talking about the case of Denise Amber Lee. This is a solved case and it's an absolutely heartbreaking one because I know we say this all the time, this didn't need to happen and you know this was so preventable. And while all of that is true in the cases that we have said that before, it is especially true in the case we are covering today. So with that being said, let's jump right on into it. Denise Amber Lee was born on August 6th, 1986 in Englewood, Florida to her parents, Rick and Sue Goff. Now, Denise's father was actually a sergeant of the Charlotte County, Florida Sheriff's Office, so Denise grew up with her family being in law enforcement. She had two sisters growing up, and Denise was incredibly smart. She actually graduated magna cum laude at Lemon Bay High School in 2004, and it was while she was at that high school where Denise began dating a man named Nathan Lee her senior year. Now, from what has been said about Nathan and Denise's personalities in high school, it definitely seems like this was an opposites attract kind of situation. Nathan was your very typical football player jock, while Denise was more so focused on her academics and making sure that her priorities for school were straight. But like I said, opposites attract. And once Denise and Nathan got together, it was no looking back for them. It was true love right from the start. And on their first Valentine's Day together, Nathan actually gifted Denise a heart-shaped ring that she wore every single day up until the day that she died. That ring was always on her finger. Now, Denise and Nathan were very certain that they wanted to spend the rest of their lives together. They knew that from the very beginning, so it was really no surprise to anyone when after they graduated high school, the two of them ended up getting married and settling down in Northport, Florida, where they had two boys together. Now, for reference, Northport is located in Sarasota, and it's actually a little less than 20 minutes away from where Denise was born in Englewood. And Englewood is also where Lemon Bay High School was, so the two decided to stay close to their roots and stay in the town that they grew up in. And when learning about Denise and who she was, the type of person that she was, there was one common factor that was always said when speaking about Denise, and that was her love for her family. Everyone who knew Denise knew how important her family was to her. Her, Nathan, and her two sons were quite literally her entire world. She absolutely loved being a mom. It was something that she wanted to do ever since she was little. And Denise and Nathan always focused on putting their family 
family first. And that doesn't mean that that didn't come with its own individual challenges. Nathan was working three jobs just to support their family while Denise stayed home with the boys. And while you can imagine having three jobs could be quite stressful, Nathan and Denise did not let it phase them. The most important thing for them was remaining together as a family and coming together at the end of the night. And they were going to do whatever they had to do in order to make that happen. So this all brings us to January 17th, 2008, so almost 15 years ago to the day. This day really started out like any normal, typical day for Denise and Nathan. Nathan left earlier that morning to go off to work. He said goodbye to Denise and the boys, and he ended up calling Denise around 11.09 a.m., just as he always did, and the two really didn't discuss anything out of the ordinary that day. The conversation was very lighthearted. It just consisted of the two of them talking about the weather. Nathan had suggested to Denise that because it was such a nice day out that day, that she should open up the windows and let some fresh air in. And Denise told Nathan that she had already done it. She was one step ahead of him. They opened up the windows to let the fresh air and the sunshine into the house. And then once it was time for the conversation to be over, the two of them said their I love yous and said their goodbyes and hung up the phone, not knowing that that would be the last time that they would ever speak to one another. Now, several hours later, at about 3 o'clock p.m. that day, Nathan had gotten off work and was driving home. Now, whenever he got off work and during his drives home, which were about 20, 25 minutes, he would call Denise just to give her a heads up, let her know that he was on his way home, and this time was no exception. So he pulls out his phone, calls Denise, but there was no answer. Now, Denise was someone who always had her phone on her. She always answered her phone, so much so that her not answering her phone just on one time was very odd to Nathan. Now, at first, Nathan just figured that more than likely she was just preoccupied with the boys and dealing with them. However, pretty quickly, Nathan got a bad feeling in the pit of his stomach, and he knew that something was wrong. So he decided to call Denise eight more times on his drive home. And like I said, this was a 25 minute drive. So this just goes to show you and should prove to you how odd it was that Denise was not answering. It was so odd and so concerning that Nathan needed to call her eight more times in that time frame just because he felt like something was off. Now, when Nathan pulled up to his house, he noticed that nothing seemed out of the ordinary. Everything seemed very normal, almost a little too normal. He pulled into the driveway where he found Denise's car, and when he walked into the house, he found Denise's phone and car keys on the living room chair. He started walking around the house, calling out for Denise's name, and one thing that he did notice was that the windows that Denise had mentioned earlier that she had opened to let the fresh air in, those windows were now shut. There was no sign anywhere of forced entry in the home, and all of those things combined began making Nathan very frantic. He started running around the house and ran into the boys' rooms to find them both in the same crib, which is something that Denise would have never done. 
After he removed the boys from the crib, he then ran back downstairs with them, looking all around the house, but there was no sign of Denise. And Nathan knew that this was extremely odd because like I emphasized earlier, Denise was completely 100% devoted to her children. There was not a way in the world that she was going to voluntarily leave the house, leave her boys home alone. Mind you, these were young boys. These were not kids who were at the age where they could be left home alone. That's not what this was. These were young boys at the time and Denise would never have just walked out on them like that. And when Nathan was looking around the house, there was one more thing that struck his attention in regards to the windows that had been shut. Nathan saw that the windows had been shut. However, he noticed that the lock latches on the windows were unlocked. And when Nathan saw this, that sinking feeling hit him again because he knew that there was not a way in the world that Denise was going to leave those windows unlocked. Denise was a very cautious person. And a lot of that had to do with her growing up with her father being a sergeant at the sheriff's department. She always took the extra step to stay safe. She was always locking doors, locking windows, closing curtains to try and protect their privacy. She was doing whatever she could constantly to make sure that her and her boys were safe. And this right here just goes to show how strongly she enforced safety and security in her home because Nathan knew that just by seeing that the lock latch was unlocked, that Denise was not the one who closed those windows. Now, Nathan running around the house looking for Denise lasted about a little under five minutes before he finally called 911 at 3.29 p.m. that day. He called the Northport Police Department, and this would be one of several 911 calls made throughout the day. Now, the second phone call that Nathan made after he called 911 was to Denise's father, Rick. And between the call to 911 as well as the call to Rick, police really hit the ground running and searching for Denise. They had a helicopter flying as well as search dogs sniffing out Denise and Nathan's home all within 30 minutes of her being reported as missing. Now, regardless of the amount of resources that police put towards looking for Denise in the beginning, they really didn't know what they were looking for, meaning they didn't know how any of this could have happened. But what they did know, like I mentioned earlier, is that Denise did not leave on her own free will. So police at this point decided that they needed to start putting some of the pieces together. And in order to do that, they started walking around to some of the neighbor's homes in the area surrounding Denise and Nathan's house. And they started asking around, seeing if anyone had seen anything unusual that day. And luckily when police did this, they got their first piece of helpful information from a neighbor of Denise and Nathan's. This neighbor claimed that around 2.15 p.m. that day, she had noticed that there was a green Chevy Camaro circling the neighborhood multiple times. And after watching this car circle several times, it lasted for about 15 minutes before this specific neighbor decided to walk outside just to kind of let the car know that there was someone out there who was watching them and that they had eyes on them. But when this neighbor walked outside, they said that they watched the car pull in 
to Denise and Nathan's driveway. Now, it was at that point that the neighbor figured that this was someone who more than likely just got lost and didn't know what house that they were looking for. Now, luckily, the neighbor was able to give police a description of the person who got out of the car. The neighbor said that a larger white male was seen getting out of the car. And again, they just figured that this was someone who was lost and then finally found the house that they were supposed to be at. The neighbor said that once they saw the man get out of the car, they then walked inside of the house. And then 10 minutes later, when they walked out again, they looked into the driveway and noticed the green Chevy Camaro was gone, which told police that whoever went inside Denise and Nathan's house was only there for at most around 10 minutes. So after speaking to the neighbor, police in Northport then knew that they had the vehicle that they believed that they were looking for. So they made all other Northport law enforcement aware to look out for that vehicle. Now the search continued on for multiple hours throughout the day. And by 6.14 PM that same night, there was a second 911 call that was made. But this time, that 911 call was actually made by Denise herself. Now, the entire 911 call is about nine minutes long. However, I am going to play a little excerpt of that 911 call right now, and then I'm going to summarize it afterwards. So basically to summarize this call, Denise stole her captor's phone while he was driving and called 911 from that phone. Now, again, this was the second phone call, 911 call, that was made to the Northport Police Department. Now, I don't know if you guys could tell on the 911 call, but Denise was very, very smart. While she was on the call, which she secretly made while her captor was driving, she started asking her captor questions in order to indicate to that 911 operator what was happening in that moment. As you heard in the call, she says that her name is Denise. She has a husband and kids. So she's making a point to identify herself on that call. And she's also continuously begging for her life. Now, what's also heard on the call is after Denise is pleading with her captor, her captor claims that he will let her go, quote unquote, as soon as I get the phone. Now, at some point, this call abruptly ends, and that was because her captor realized that the phone 
was missing and suddenly the line went dead. Now you would think because this call was nine minutes long that the 911 operator would be able to trace the call, trace the location. However, unfortunately, the call that was made was made off of a burner phone. So the 911 operator was not able to trace it and find an exact location for it. Now, one thing they were able to do, though, was go back and trace where this specific phone was purchased from, and more specifically, who this phone was purchased by. And that's when they were introduced to the name Michael Lee King. Michael King was a 36-year-old plumber who was recently unemployed and living in Northport, Florida at the time. Michael was recently divorced at the time of the kidnapping, and he also had a 12-year-old child. However, he lived on his own and had no connection to Denise whatsoever. The two of them were complete strangers. Now, what we didn't know at the time that we do now is that right after Michael had kidnapped Denise, he had brought her back to his home and brought her into a room of his house that has since been coined the rape room. That was the name that was given to the room that Denise was held in at trial. After raping Denise for several hours, he then put her back in the car and drove over to his cousin's house. Now, Michael's cousin is a man named Harold Muxlow. And when Michael and Denise arrived at the home, Michael actually left Denise in the car because obviously he didn't want Harold to see the woman that he had, which by the way, she was bound and blindfolded while in the car. So this was obviously not something that Michael wanted Harold to see. So Michael leaves Denise in the car while he walks into Harold's home, where he asks Harold if he could borrow a shovel, a gas can, and a flashlight. Now, he blamed needing these items on the fact that his lawnmower had gotten stuck in the mud, and he needed these items to help get the lawnmower out. Now, Harold really didn't think much of this, obviously, and so he went to go look for these items. Now, while Harold was doing that, Michael was able to look out the window where he was able to visibly see his car. And when he did that, he saw that Denise had escaped out of the car and began running away from the vehicle, screaming and begging for her life and begging for help. Now, this all happened very quickly because while Denise was out there screaming for someone to call 911, Harold then walked in with the supplies that Michael needed. And so Michael quickly grabbed the supplies, ran out to his car, grabbed Denise, threw her back in the car, jumped in the front seat and drove away. Now, what Michael did not know was that there was actually another person in Harold's house at that time that this was all happening, and that was his daughter, Sabrina. And after Michael ended up leaving the house at 6.23 p.m., this is when the third 911 call came into the Northport Police Department, and it was made by Harold's daughter, Sabrina. Sabrina explained to the operator that her uncle had showed up unannounced to their house asking for a shovel, a gas can, and a flashlight. She also explained that the way that Michael parked was seemingly odd to her. Instead of just pulling up directly next to the house, he ended up parking across the street 
and he parallel parked in a way that the driver's side of the car was facing Harold's house and that the passenger side, which was where Denise was at that time, was just facing a grassy field because there was no house right across the street from Harold's. So it was just like a field of grass. And that's the side that Denise was looking out at. Sabrina also went on to explain to the operator that there was a woman who got out of the car and that she was bounded and blindfolded and was screaming for someone to call 911 before Michael had shoved her back into the car and drove off. So that was the third call that was made to 911, and it was just made minutes before the fourth call was put in. And at 6.30 p.m., the fourth 911 call was made, and this time it was made by a witness named Jane. She told the operator that she was at an intersection in Charlotte County, which is about 32 minutes away from Northport. Jane told the operator that while she was waiting at a stoplight, there was a green Chevy Camaro that pulled up next to her. She went on to say that she actually didn't even notice the car next to her until she started hearing the blood-curdling screams that were coming out of the car. When she looked over to see what was going on, she saw the man who was driving the car pushing someone's head down that was in the back seat. Now, because they were being shoved to the bottom of the car, Jane really couldn't make out an accurate description of who the victim was, but she did notice that it was an obvious struggle and that the victim was banging their hands on the windows of the car. Now, like I mentioned, they were at an intersection when all of this happened, and when the light turned green, Jane actually didn't drive right away because she was waiting for Michael King to drive ahead of her. That way, she could take down his license plate number to give to the 911 operator. However, Michael was already one step ahead of her at this point, and he knew that she was not going to drive first. So he ended up waiting too. So both of them are now waiting at this green stoplight and ultimately Jane did begin driving. And when she did that, Michael also began driving behind her as well. But this time Michael got directly behind her. That way there was no possible way that Jane could retrieve the license plate number. Now, at this point, Jane was driving incredibly, incredibly slow, hoping that Michael would get frustrated and just go around her. That way she could get the license plate. She was very strategic about all of this. And I've got to hand it to her for her to think that quickly is very impressive. However, again, Michael waited for just the right time where he was able to completely veer off the road and go down a different road called Toledo Blade, and that was just moments before Jane was able to get the license plate. So like I said, Jane had called this into 911. However, weirdly enough, police were never notified or dispatched to the area that Jane had reported seeing Denise. And we're going to get into why in a minute, because it's very, very important. And we're also going to talk about how detrimental it was that police were never notified about this. Do you ever fantasize about who you'd be if you lived somewhere different? Maybe you'd surf if you lived by the beach. Or maybe if you lived in the city, you would live above a coffee shop and finally be able to write that novel you've always dreamed of. Or if you had a dishwasher, maybe you'd actually be able to start cooking and make a proper dinner at home. With over 1 million available units for rent on Apartments.com, the you abilities are endless. Apartments.com lets you narrow down exactly what you want and when you want it. And with their instant alert, 
you'll never miss out on seeing what could be your new perfect place. Apartments.com has helped millions of renters find their perfect place to live, whether that's an apartment, a townhome, or even a house, and they can help you find exactly what it is that you're looking for. Visit Apartments.com, the place to find a place. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Now at 6.50 p.m., the last 911 call was made. So just looking at timeline for timeline purposes, this is about 20 minutes after the call that Jane made to 911. So at 6.50 p.m., the final 911 call was made, and it was actually made by Michael's cousin, Harold. Harold had called into 911 out of a payphone in hopes to remain anonymous. However, on the phone, he explained to the operator that he was, quote, not exactly sure what the emergency is, end quote. However, in regards to what happened to Michael at his house earlier and the woman who left his car, he claimed, quote, it didn't look like she wanted to be there, end quote. Harold went on to explain the entire situation to the 911 operator and said that there was a woman who jumped out of Michael's car and pleaded with him to call the police. He said that Michael then shoved her back into the car and told Harold not to worry about it before driving off. Now, again, Harold made this 911 call off of a payphone at 6.50 p.m. that same night, and this was the last and final 911 call that was made. Now, again, we're going to get to why this is in a minute, so just hang tight. However, police in Charlotte County, which again, 30 minutes away from Northport. Police in Charlotte County were not made aware of the type of vehicle that they were looking for, so the green Chevy Camaro, until 6.45 p.m. that night. And that is several hours after the police in Northport were made aware of the type of vehicle that they were looking for. Again, we're gonna get into the why that that is the case in a second. However, at 6.45, they knew the type of car that they were on the lookout for. And so several hours later at 9.15 p.m., a patrol officer in Charlotte County had spotted Michael's green Chevy Camaro on that same street, Toledo Blade. And at this point, police in Charlotte County pulled over Michael. But of course, it really wasn't that simple because Michael did not stop when the police began following him and flashed their lights for him to pull over. He did not stop. So police had to go the extra mile with this and they ended up doing a felony block. So they crashed in to the front of his car in order to stop him from moving any further. The police then got out of their car and tried to get Michael to leave his. However, again, Michael refused to get out of his car. And it wasn't until police threatened Michael by telling him that they were going to use deadly force to remove him from his vehicle if he did not get out. So at that point, Michael did end up getting out of the car. The first thing that the officers noticed on Michael was the fact that his entire waist down was completely soaking wet and his shoes were covered in mud. 
Now, Michael was immediately arrested and his car was searched at the scene. And that is where police found Michael's burner phone. However, the SIM card and the battery were missing from that phone. There was also a muddy shovel that was discovered in the back seat of the car. However, with all of this, there was obviously one thing missing from the car, and that was Denise. So after Michael's arrest, police sent Michael's car to the police department to be properly searched. And when they did that, they discovered blood spatter on the front of the car, as well as strains of hair and other bodily fluids. On the passenger side floor, they found the gas can and the SIM card to the burner phone. In between the cushions of the seats of the car, examiners discovered a clump of long hair that they could tell had been removed at the roots. And along with that, they also found Denise's heart-shaped ring that Nathan had gifted her on their first Valentine's Day together. Now, based on the amount of evidence that was found in the car, police were able to theorize that this was Denise's way of saying that she was here, this is the guy, and you found him, essentially. Denise wanted to leave a DNA trail behind. She left her ring. She left her clump of hair that had the roots still attached so that police would be able to nail down who her murderer was, which is honestly just so heartbreaking to think about. I get chills whenever I talk about this just because I can't even fathom what she was thinking in those final moments, knowing that she more than likely wasn't going to make it out of this alive, being terrified for her life, so much so that she's planting evidence of her own in the car just so police can get the guy. So Michael is now arrested. But before we move on with that, I do want to go back and talk about why police in Charlotte County were not made aware of the green Camaro that they were looking for. So I mentioned earlier, Jane, the woman who called 911, she was actually watching the news the following morning. And obviously after Michael's arrest, this became very public knowledge. So the story about Michael and Denise was on the news at this point. And Jane was watching the news and noticed that this was the same man from the green Chevy Camaro that she saw the day before. And so she ended up calling the police department and she called the Northport police department and basically checks in with them and says that she was the one who made the 63911 call and that if there was anything she could do to help assist authorities in basically getting Michael convicted to let her know. Now you could imagine Jane's utter shock and confusion when she learns from police that they have no idea what she's talking about. They had no idea who Jane was. They had no idea what call she was referring to. And as you can imagine, this made absolutely no sense to Jane. That was until police figured out why they didn't know who Jane was. So essentially, police were able to look back and realize that the call that Jane had made to 911 had gone to Charlotte County, like I mentioned earlier. So her 911 call was made to the Charlotte County Police Department. And it is from what the Charlotte County Dispatch claims was, quote, understaffing and chaotic work environments and shift changes end quote, that the Charlotte County Dispatch never actually logged Jane's 911 call. 
And Jane's 911 call was the last call that included Denise's whereabouts. And because police were never notified. So just let's just clear this up a little bit. Jane calls 911. 911 is supposed to dispatch that to police so they are notified, so they know what to do, so they know where to go, so they know what to look for. But that line of communication was never made. So because of that, because of the understaffing and the chaotic environment and the shift in schedules, police were never made aware of Denise's last known location. So they never knew to go to Toledo Blade Road to look down that street to find Michael King because also they never knew what car they were looking for because they were never notified. Now, as you can imagine, when this piece of information came out, the public was pissed. And for very good reason, it just seemed very insensitive that this whole situation and the potential of not saving someone's life was all blamed on a shift change and chaotic working environment. And it was almost made even worse. The public almost became even more upset when the Charlotte County Sheriff did not fire the two dispatchers. And this was honestly probably the worst part, called the incident and missed opportunity. Those were the words that were used to defend why Denise's life was potentially ended. And this is to not put all the blame on the dispatchers because this goes far beyond the dispatchers at that point. However, you have to understand the frustration of the fact that the job wasn't done. And then to have the insensitivity to call it a missed opportunity just really seems like a slap in the face. And on that same road, Toledo Blade Road, that Jane told the dispatcher about that the police ended up pulling Michael over on, that same road is where Denise's body would end up being recovered the following day on January 19th. Denise's body was discovered right off of Toledo Road in a wooded area, and she was found buried in a three-foot shallow grave covered in mud and sand. She was found without any clothes on her body and her exact location was about five miles away from where Jane had last seen her at that intersection. When an autopsy was performed, a medical examiner was able to conclude that the cause of death for Denise was revealed to be a single gunshot wound on the right side of her head. The medical examiner found that Denise had been brutally raped and that there were defensive wounds all over her body, indicating that she fought for her life until the very end. Now, once Michael was arrested, he was charged with first-degree murder, sexual battery, and kidnapping. He pled not guilty to any of the charges, and Michael's defense team claimed that Michael had suffered from brain damage as a result of a sledding accident that he had when he was younger, and that his IQ was only 71, which to put into perspective, the average IQ in America is about 98. Now, along with that, Michael's defense also claimed that he had no wrongdoing in this case, not, not any whatsoever, because him and Denise were both victims. Michael tried to claim that both him and Denise had been kidnapped together at the same time. However, because there was quite literally no evidence to back that up, and that was all just a made-up story to try and save his own ass, no one believed it. 
And not only that, the evidence just screams otherwise. Police were able to discover Denise's shorts that she was wearing that day nearby where her body was found. And there was Michael's DNA all over Denise's body and on those shorts as well. So that only further strengthened the evidence against him. Now, based off of everything that police and the prosecution were able to put together, this is what they believe happened that day. On January 17th, Michael King was driving around Denise's neighborhood searching for a victim. They don't believe that he had any prior contact to Denise before this and that this was simply a crime of opportunity. They believe that Michael stumbled upon Denise's home while he was doing his circling around the neighborhood and noticed through the windows being open that Denise was by herself. They then believe that he finally ended up pulling into the driveway, went into the home, and abducted Denise out of the home. After taking Denise, it is believed that he then took her back to his house, which was 7.2 miles away from where Denise lived, and continuously raped her there over the course of several hours. After assaulting her, they believe that he put a blindfold on her as well as duct tape over her wrists and her ankles and then placed her in his car before driving over to his cousin Harold's house, which is approximately five miles away from where Michael lived at the time. After receiving the materials that Michael had asked for from Harold, it is believed that he then drove around for a little bit before ultimately ending her life. Police believe it's possible that Michael had ended her life sooner than he had anticipated due to the fact that he realized that people were starting to watch him and catch on and he became frantic because of that and ultimately killed her. Now, during the trial, both Harold and Jane testified against Michael, and after all was said and done, the jury deliberated for about two hours before finding Michael King guilty of kidnapping, sexual battery, and first-degree murder. And several days later, in early September, Michael King was sentenced to death on a unanimous 12-0 vote. So now that Michael has been put away for life, given the death penalty and justice has been served, it still doesn't make it any easier for Denise's family. Because not only do they have to live with the fact that Denise is gone and she will never be coming home to her husband and her kids ever again, they also have to deal with the fact that this was so easily preventable in the way that Denise was just let down by the dispatchers in this situation. Obviously, we don't know what would have happened had those dispatchers actually relayed the information to police. However, what we do know is that because it wasn't logged at all, Denise never got the fair chance that she deserved. And also, in a lot of these cases, we sit back and we say, you know, there really wasn't anything else that could have been done, and police did everything they can, which the police did do everything they could in this situation, but that's only because that they were deprived from a lot of the information that was necessary. And this isn't a case where we can say there was nothing more that could have been done. Now, because of everything that had happened with the dispatching situation, Denise's husband, Nathan, decided that he needed to do something about this. 
Nathan ended up founding the Denise Amber Lee Foundation shortly after her murder, with the goal of the foundation being to minimize human error in 911 centers by promoting improved training and procedures. Now, shortly after the foundation was created, the Denise Amber Lee Act was actually signed into law by Florida legislators. This act requires all emergency responders to undergo 232 hours of improved 911 operators training. Now, since starting this foundation, Nathan has traveled to over 20 states and spoke at multiple 911 conferences. He has also sued the Charlotte County 911 Dispatch Department and received a $1.25 million settlement in 2012. Now, since Denise's murder, Nathan has gone on and remarried and claims that even though nothing will ever bring his wife back, he finds comfort in knowing that he still has part of her in his two sons. So that, you guys, is the case of Denise Amber Lee. And I'm sure you guys have a lot to say about this one. I know I certainly do. And I cannot wait to hear your comments on it. But with that being said, you guys, that is all I have for you today. Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Killer Instinct. If you're new here, hi, my name is Savannah and I'm your host of Killer Instinct. Make sure you go ahead and hit that subscribe button. That way you never miss an episode. Like I mentioned, we post weekly on YouTube and all podcast platforms every Wednesday. I'll be back next week with a brand new case for you guys. And until then, stay safe. Bye guys.